Well, what do you know? It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of September 30th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. A lot of revisiting going on this week, and we'll start with a program I call King Tut, the ultimate troubleshooter, T-U-T, hence King Tut. You start your computer, you find there are several additional processes, and maybe dozens of them, that also start. You can see these processes if you press Control-Alt-Delete and then use the Task Manager to examine the Processes tab. You'll even be able to figure out what some of them are by their names, but there are going to be some that have names not even a mother could love. The Ultimate Troubleshooter, a program I've looked at previously, knows about a lot of these applications. See, the problem is Task Manager doesn't give you a lot of information. The Ultimate Troubleshooter, on the other hand, gives you a lot. I liked version 3 of this $30 application when I saw it a while ago, and version 4 is even better. It's a British program from AnswersThatWork.com. And the people who wrote The Ultimate Troubleshooter are not afraid to tell you exactly what they think about the processes they find. For example, Apple's QuickTime process. This is kind of an annoyance with me because it gets installed whenever iTunes is installed or updated, and it insists on installing its instant load feature without telling anybody, just so any QuickTime content will load imperceptibly faster. So Apple decides that it's okay to use some of the processor cycles that I may want to apply to some other application, just so should I decide to play a QuickTime movie, it'll start 200 milliseconds faster. That's my opinion of it. Here is the ultimate troubleshooter's opinion of it, and I quote, Apple's QuickTime tray icon enables you to start QuickTime from the system tray from version 5 onward. Given the extremely simple functionality of this tray icon, it is, in our view, an unreasonable resource hog. It has been measured to use as much as 1.5 megabytes of memory at times in earlier versions, and in version 7 it uses as much as 3.4 megabytes of memory on our test systems. Yet on Windows PCs... Hardly anyone starts QuickTime manually, whether it's from the system tray or otherwise. What usually happens is that the end user opens a QuickTime movie file or email attachment, and Windows then automatically opens QuickTime to enable the end user to view the movie or video. There is therefore almost never a need for the end user to start QuickTime manually from the system tray, and they recommend turning it off. And I turn it off every time Apple installs it, which is every time iTunes gets an update. The Ultimate Troubleshooter uses a tabbed interface to display information about your computer. You'll see the tasks, the services, and any programs that are running with a pretty good explanation of what they do and some suggestions about whether you should allow them to continue living or not. The Tasks tab shows running processes and color codes them green as OK, yellow, 
take your pick, or red, recommending that you kill it. You'll also see some that are marked with blue buttons. These are multiple possibility programs. And the writers of the application do have a low opinion of just about any automatic update process. Services tab is very much similar. You'll see a list of all running services with the same kind of color coding and the same snarky comments. And then there's the Startups tab, even more snarky comments, same kind of color coding, with the option to turn off startup applications that you don't want to start when the computer starts. The Ultimate Troubleshooter will help you streamline your PC for speed and stability. It's a surprisingly robust application for the $30 price tag, and the snarky comments just add to the charm, as far as I'm concerned. You'll find a link to the Answers That Work website, which will take you to the Ultimate Troubleshooter, on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. A few weeks ago, I took a look at COTA's website, the Central Ohio Transit Authority. At that time, I decided it was really not a very good website. I did mention that probably some things weren't working, so this past week I revisited the site, and indeed, the problem back then was that something wasn't working. A lot of some things weren't working. A lot of them are now working. The Kota website offers a lot of good information if you need to ride the bus, but there are also still some serious usability problems. The site is still somewhat frustrating, but it's a lot more helpful than it was the last time I looked. Now, I am a big supporter of public transit. I would love a public transit system that would take me from where I live to where I work. When I worked for the state, Many, many, many years ago, I did take the bus from home to downtown. Worked beautifully. These days, I can drive in 20 minutes or less. By bus, it would be 90 minutes plus probably about a mile or mile and a half walk along a road without any sidewalks. But I would ride the bus if I could. So I thought I'd try something simple. I would start at High and First, High Street, First Avenue. I would then travel to Broad Street at Wilson Road. That's pretty straightforward. I know how I could get there, take the High Street bus, and then transfer to the Broad Street bus and get off at Wilson. That would be easy. So I figured that would be a pretty easy one to find on the trip planner. Coda tells you to use an at sign between streets and even gives some examples. Broad, at sign, High, for example. So I entered high at sign first, and for the destination, I entered broad at sign Wilson, and I clicked submit. That took me to another screen that wanted, well, it wanted exactly the same information that I'd already filled in on the first screen, but at least the information was already filled in, and all I had to do was click the submit button again. There was no match for either intersection. I got a list of suggestions for my high street location, but none of the suggestions was anywhere near what I wanted. The Broad Street location actually did have a match, so I selected that. I then decided that perhaps Coda doesn't know that First Street intersects high, so I tried high at sign 5th. The only match Coda could find for that was Highland Elementary School. Now, High and Fifth is one of the larger and more significant transfer points on the High Street route. 
the Fifth Avenue Crosstown line intersects with the High Main line there. So it seemed like Cota should know about High Street and Fifth Avenue. So instead of High and Fifth, I tried High Street at sign Fifth Avenue. Highland Elementary School. Hmm. So then I tried High at 15th. It's in the OSU area. Coda still suggested that I was looking really for Highland Avenue School. Now, if you look at a map of Columbus, and I provide one on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see that High Street at 15th Avenue is fairly far north of downtown. And you'll see that South Highland Avenue, which is where Highland Elementary School is located, is fairly far south and west of the main part of town. Not at all close. I tried something else. You can work with a landmark. So I tried Ohio State. And because I had lived for a while in Steve Hall, I decided to select that from the list. Then the system was able to give me information on how to make the trip that I wanted, although not from my original departure point. It provided a list of nine possible routes to get there. I clicked one, and when I did that, the listing provided more detailed information. This is very good, and the information provided was excellent. But it shouldn't be that hard to find the information. But then I noticed something. I noticed that the main page shows the way to enter an address is broad, at sign high, while the actual search page shows broad, ampersand high. Hmm. Maybe that's the problem, I thought. So instead of the at sign, I decided to use the ampersand, and I entered broad, ampersand, high, now there's an intersection Coda should know about, and high, ampersand, fifth. Coda still suggested Highland Elementary School. So I gave up on that feature. The real-time feature, as I mentioned before, and it was working the last time I tried this, is really very helpful, particularly if you live near a bus line and you'd like to see where your bus is. Say, for example, it's raining or snowing. You don't want to stand at the bus stop for a long time, and you'd like to know whether the bus is on time, maybe a little early or a bit late. Select the bus line, and you'll see where the buses are and whether they're on time or not. shows you on a map where the bus is, which direction the bus is going, and if you click it, it'll tell you whether the bus is early or late or on time. Except for one thing. On the number two line, one of the buses was shown on the map not on High Street, but over on Route 315. Now, I don't think it was really over there. The number two bus line does not run on 315. Perhaps they need to fix that. The bus stop selector was working the last time I tried it, too. Selecting broad and high as a starting point, I asked how many bus stops were located within a quarter of a mile and found out there are 27. I clicked one of the stops to see the exact location and then selected a link to show me more information about that bus stop. And this is what I thought I would see the last time I tried this. The screen displays a list of which buses use the stop and provides links to information about the routes and the real-time schedule of those buses. This is another very nice feature. Coda's on the right track, and I really hate to knock Coda because they are trying. But the website really does still need some work. 
And this week I am also revisiting Microsoft Windows Vista. A couple of weeks ago I grumbled that Vista isn't all it's cracked up to be. That was a few weeks after I said that I generally liked what I was seeing. Well, now I'm back to generally liking what I'm seeing, but with a few concerns. If you've been following this saga, you know that the computer has been in the shop several times recently. It spent several more days there this week. It's back at home now, seems to be performing well and feeling much better. The problems that acted like hardware problems might actually have been device drivers that Microsoft installed to help me. The problems I've been wrestling with, and actually in most cases foisting off onto TCR computers, have involved black screen crashes and blue screen crashes. And I thought it might be a good idea to describe those terms, define them, so that you'll understand what I'm talking about. Most Windows users have seen the infamous blue screen of death. Similar to what Mac users know as a kernel panic, the blue screen includes a stop code that may help you determine what the problem actually was. Blue screens of death are one of the least graceful features you'll encounter, but at least they do provide some information. The black screen of death, on the other hand, are what I call spontaneous restarts. Everything may seem to be functioned properly when something suddenly happens, usually a lot of disk activity, and then a non-responsive or semi-responsive computer, and then the computer simply restarts without warning. No blue screen, no message, just poof. Short of having the computer actually burst into flames, this is the worst possible kind of crash. Black screens of death are followed by a warning on restart. The warning will state that Windows did not terminate normally and suggest a safe mode along with several other options. It will also recommend removing any newly installed hardware or software, although in some cases, if Windows Update installed something you didn't know about, you may not even know it's there and you may not know what to remove. It will also offer to restart the machine normally. And that's actually the best choice in most cases following a black screen error. If the computer starts and runs normally, you can assume that it was just some oddball incident that caused the abnormal ending, and it was just a fluke. But what I've seen following these recent black screens of death is a series of blue screens of death and a system that will not boot. Is this a hardware problem or something else? At first, it looked solely like a hardware problem. TCR replaced the hard drive. It then looked like it was a memory problem, and TCR replaced the memory. Either or both of those components may actually have been faulty. But the final resolution involved updating firmware on the motherboard, getting rid of some video drivers that Windows Update had helpfully downloaded, even though those drivers were four years out of date and not certified for Vista and updating drivers for the audio subsystem, although I thought I had already done that. Well, when I play music from iTunes now, it still stops and stutters and stumbles a bit from time to time, but it's nowhere near as bad as it was for a while. The problem may be related to my online backup service, Carbonite, which seems to be responsible for an awful lot of disk thrashing sometimes. So it may not be entirely Windows Vista's fault, 
and it may or may not have been a hardware problem, but the computer is back and running again, and I'm fairly happy with Vista again. Some of the problems I had seen previously weren't really Vista problems. I'm going to continue to try to sort this out. Maybe I'll give you a definitive answer in about 2017. Instead of a stupid spam of the week, we have a stupid spammer of the week. When marketers discovered mail merge, and it became possible to include your name in lots of locations throughout a direct mail letter, a lot of marketers overdid it. They sprinkled your name throughout the letter in colors, in different typefaces, frequently really big. Well, that was a clear tip-off, not that someone had sent you a personal letter, but that someone had sent you an automated, computer-generated letter. A lot of those letters just went into the trash. Well, now spammers have tumbled to the trick. Sometimes they're not quite bright enough to make the technology work for them. For example, I received one recently that was an investment offer to name. And then there was kind of a tracking number code, SDD name, 2007, and a bunch of other gobbledygook. Throughout the letter, there were references to name. That's obviously where my name should have gone, had it actually been done properly. This was kind of an amusing spam. It seemed to want to hire me. The management of Standard Trust Investment Group, Inc., a subsidiary of Standard Bank Limited, is currently embarking on a huge capital global offshore investments. This project is being embarked upon on behalf of 121 reputable clients of bank who have indicated interest to pursue huge capital offshore investment overseas. We are hereby making an offer officially to name to engage your services as our overseas representative to act as project manager, investment manager, finance manager, and assets manager independently in your country. This is a greatly rewarding and irresistible business offer as your reward shall be based on the commission from the said investments and 0% risk, 0% investment from would-be project finance investment and assets manager. When the details of this matter are disclosed, well, it went on and on and on. I was told that I needed to contact the regional coordinator, and it gave his address with a domain name of SIFY, S-I-F-Y dot com. It also gave a phone number that began with the country code 27. Now, they had suggested that they were in London. I already know that London is in England. And I know that England's country code is 44, not 27. I did have to look up 27. That's South Africa. So they want me to think that they are a big division of an even larger bank. Wouldn't I reasonably expect an employee of a company that large to have a corporate email address instead of one at siffy.com? And what the heck is a siffy.com? Siffy.com is an internet portal in India. It's part of SIFI hosting. And what about this Standard Trust? Well, it seems that Standard Trust is actually listed by the British Financial Services Authority, but on a list that, and I quote, 
the British Financial Services Authority, on a list that contains the names of entities promoting themselves over the Internet and purporting to be banks and or offering banking-type services. However, none are authorized by the British Financial Services Authority. So what we have is an email from somebody who can't write very well and who has only the most tenuous grasp of punctuation and capitalization, along with an utter lack of knowledge about how to use his own spamming program. The message promotes a fake financial institution that claims to be in England but directs you to call your regional coordinator who has a South African telephone number and an Indian email address. Now that's a good way to inspire a lot of confidence. In nerdly news, Verizon decides to allow people who want messages to receive them. Verizon had refused to allow NARAL, that's an abortion rights group, to send text messages to people who had requested them. But now the company has reversed itself. Regardless of your view of abortion right to life or anything else dealing with the debate on the issue, you might question the decision of a common carrier to refuse to allow the transmission of legal messages to people who have requested those messages. Not spam, but to people who have requested the messages. By the end of the week, somebody at Verizon decided that the decision was pretty stupid. A spokesperson said that the earlier decision not to permit the messages was an isolated incident. I would agree with Verizon if it applied the policy to unsolicited messages, But when an organization wants to send messages to people who have requested them, that's something else. Verizon says the decision was an incorrect interpretation of an old policy that was designed to avoid anonymous hate messaging and adult material sent to children. Okay? You kind of have to wonder how they would think that a message would be anonymous if it's coming from an organization that somebody has asked to receive messages from. Oh well. Microsoft has more than quadrupled the amount of material it searches on the web, so says Microsoft. So four times nothing is still nothing? Microsoft, obviously worried about what Google has up its sleeve, says that it now better understands what people want when they conduct Internet searches, and now they, Microsoft, can deliver better and more relevant responses. Google today is the search engine used for more than half of Internet searches in the United States, about 56%. Yahoo handles about 23%. Microsoft comes in at 11%. But remember when Microsoft had only 11% of the browser market. Microsoft may have a better mousetrap, but now it has to convince users that what it offers is better than what Google offers. In some ways, the improvements at Microsoft have already been implemented by Google, And Yahoo has plans to add similar features in the near future. And that's it for September. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of September 30th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And you can send an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.